Well, welcome to the uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast. I'm Jim Grant, and with me today is Paul Isaac, who is the progenitor and, uh, for all I know, the president of Arbiter Partners, a most successful hedge fund and one in which I have a personal interest. I'll disclose all of this presently. Also with me is uh, the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant's, and Phil Grant, the editor of Almost Daily Grant's, virtually daily, I'd say, from GM, and uh, Eric Whitehead at the Dials. And we are brought to you today through the kind intercession of LinkedIn Learning and away travel, both about which presently. So, Paul, welcome. Uh, Great to be here. Yeah, it is so nice to have you. I should uh, disclose, Paul, that we are thick as thieves. I mean, Paul J. Isaac is a director of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, or its holding company, and uh, our family is an investor and arbiter partners and a most satisfied one. Uh, Paul, you can shut your earphones off now because this will mortify you, but from the start, the inception of Arbiter, and it was a $1 race, the S&P 500 and Arbiter. It drives Paul crazy, by the way, to uh, have everything compared to the S&P 500, but so be it for now, but if you had started in 2001, as you should have with a buck and Arbiter Partners, it would, as of a fairly recent date, be worth uh, more than $16, whereas your miserable dollar in the S&P 500 would scarcely be knocking in the door of three lonely dollars. 16 versus three. All right, that'll end that infomercial. Uh, but Paul is a lifelong friend. He is investor royalty. His father, Irving, was not Irving? Yes. Specialist, I guess, in workout investments in the 30s, although I dare say that most everyone was in that field in the 30s, and he is a nephew of the late and great Walter Schloss, who once had the privilege of working for Ben Graham, and indeed Ben Graham had the privilege of employing Walter Schloss. So, um, Paul, without further ado, welcome. Now, Paul, you had a, uh, we've been corresponding, you and I, email-wise on cryptocurrencies, and I must say, it, I find the topic annoying because, not entirely because I've missed the entire fast-moving boat. I'm a gold guy, and here gold moves predictably between $1,288 and $12 dollars, $1,287, whereas Bitcoin predictably quintuples every three weeks. It's rather an annoying thing. But you have, have coined, so to speak, a fail-safe trading strategy for Bitcoin, having to do with, with the owner of Bitcoin, a, a younger person, and the supervisor of that investor, an older person. Can you care to share with us the trading strategy? Well, I think any millennial who invests in cryptocurrency should then sell as soon as their parents ask them how they can get involved. Have you, as this, by the way, is this a sort of point in your house? Or a, a... No, um, so far, as far as I know, my, my children have other things to do and haven't gotten involved. Well, you know, uh, Bitcoin and cryptos, and Evan, I know you follow this as well, Phil, and long-suffering, Eric listens to us talk about most of the day, the cryptos have this singular property. They go up when they have, read a fork in the road, when there's two of them, when there used to be one, that's bullish, and they go up when a portion of them is, as they say, wiped through some electronic happenstance. Now, how does this happen? Enthusiasm. At this point, uh, we're clearly in a mania. People are, have various concepts, some of which I think are indirect consequences of the decline in the rates of return available on more conventional investments that you've written about so eloquently. And cryptocurrencies at this point are seen as a vision of the future. And really after Facebook, uh, Microsoft, uh, arguably Amazon, Netflix, there's a widespread belief that if you can pick the right network effect in a particular participant in some burden market that you're looking at the opportunity of at least a decade. And pretty clearly, blockchain technology does have applications. I'm not a computer scientist, but been reliably assured that blockchain technology will enhance productivity and be implemented in various types of functions. Cryptocurrencies are the popular imagination of manifestation of blockchain technology. And you seem to have a large number of people who are trying to figure out 
which one is going to be the one that's going to go to the moon. And collectively, this has resulted in money coming in and producing a bit of a mania. Evan, you watch the uh, proliferation of these things. Uh, what, what's what's the, uh, the coin, uh, what's the website? Um, all coin, uh, coin market cap, I think. Yes. I, I need to look it up. But yeah, when we first started writing about this a couple months ago, there was like 800 and change in uh, cryptocurrencies outstanding. Now I think there's over 1,200. I, I thought I read, including coin tokens, you're pushing 2,000. So are these coins, are they rabbits? <laughs> the Well, it, to the extent that you can create them profitably or you can essentially uh, arbitrage them and theoretically the supposed person or progenitors of Bitcoin are still sitting on a million of the things with a, something like a $7 billion market cap now, there's an enormous potential promotional consideration and there is a tremendously volatile and I gather moderately actively traded market and therefore these kinds of things attract speculative interest. I mean, Bitcoin probably still doesn't exceed the cumulative uh, volume of gambling in Macau each uh, <laughs> each year. And right. the, uh, in Yap, there was a use for stone money. So if something becomes embedded enough in the culture, it can develop various types of, of momentum. But one of, the, one of the things about these coins that strikes us here is the ungreenness of them. This is a branch of the asset markets that is meant to appeal to the imaginative young, and indeed it has. But there is a suspension of criticism of the utter devastation to the environment that uh, these coins... Evan, do you, would you care to reflect on... Uh... Yeah, there was an article the other day saying that power used to actually verify the blockchain and mint new bitcoins is approaching the annual power consumption of Japan. Uh, I thought it was the Netherlands. Was That was Isabella Kaminska's column in the Financial Times yesterday? I think it was a Bloomberg piece the other Let's day. Let's take the over. Japan's good. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, you, you had another sighting with respect to China, right? So China mines these things. China is the, is the headquarters of Bitcoin. Bitcoin mining and all this power would seem to be a draw on Chinese coal supplies, right? Yeah, th th this was Ann Stevenson Yang's question. She said, so let's say that, you know, Bitcoin's consuming Japan's ele annual e electricity consumption and 60% of it's happening in China. Either why aren't we seeing huge draws in uh, coal stocks or what does this mean for the rest of the economy? Well, there are a couple of other questions that, that sort of come up. If given the unregulated nature of Bitcoin, do you really want a currency that is essentially controlled and denominated by some shadowy crowd in the PRC, uh, whose governance and, and uh, organization... Yes, you do, actually. Aware of. Uh, and and uh, I, there was a comment that you're you're using something like 215 kilowatt hours per transaction in Bitcoin now, uh, and the aggregate cost is over 100 times what it costs to do a credit card transaction. Plus, uh, you can only handle about five transactions per second. The irony is, is that Bitcoin, presumably, since computer software advances over time, probably is a relatively early version of the development of blockchain technology, you would expect people to come up with better versions yeah. of it that would be more effective. Yet Bitcoin, because of its uh, actively traded market and large market capitalization, continues to attract speculative interest. But but you, you would think that it actually would tend to get superseded over time. Um, someone, Evan, you mentioned Japan. You are in the business of looking for the um, the cleanest, dirty shirt in the world. Your remit, uh, your self-designated remit is to uh, kind of go anywhere, anytime for any asset class that appears to offer not relative value, that's not sufficient, but necessary absolute value. So 
Would you care to talk about Japan both as an absolute value and as the perhaps least objectionable relative value in a world that is uh, very, very light on bargains? Yeah, Japan is the least expensive major market. The yen is the cheapest major currency in terms of purchasing power parity. Take a look at even something like the Big Mac Index, which The Economist actually has been compiling for years. Japan is undervalued relative to the dollar by an excess of 20%. The Japanese have a gigantic uh, foreign exchange reserve, something like $3 trillion. They're running a current account surplus of 2 to 3% of GDP. Given the microscopic yields in Japan, you've essentially, uh, you actually still are having the Japanese government refinance at progressively lower rates of interest. Uh, they do have room for some inflation to grow before you're likely to get any kind of an, a highly adverse reaction from the part of the Japanese public in terms of holding these zero coupon instruments. They're aging and they want that security. They, the Japanese have a pronounced home country bias. They don't have much in the way of external debt. But Paul, does it bother you that so much of the upside would appear to have as its impetus the unprecedented and heretofore unimagined exertions of the Bank of Japan? I mean, buying not just government securities, but ETFs, doing a hand over fist, seemingly the price mechanism, which certainly is on the defensive worldwide, not least in Europe, owing to the central bank's actions, the price mechanism almost appear to be extinguished in Japan. Yeah, except the Japanese equities actually are cheaper than U.S. or European equities. So you have this yawning gap in terms of prospective uh, earnings yields between what is admittedly a essentially a, a regulated interest rate what, and the what, actual... What uh, larger cap Japanese name comes to mind as illustrative of... Well, we're, we actually, our big positions are in the general trading companies, which are de facto conglomerates that act as intermediaries between large Japanese companies and the rest of the world. And these things are still trading at sub-10 prospective PEs, have some positive exposure to a commodity cycle. If one is starting again, have substantially delevered and actually pay dividends that are quite competitive compared to what we can find in comparable companies in the United States or Europe. Yeah. All right. A, a question on that. If, if part of the reason why Japan is cheap is the currency is undervalued by 20% and they're running a large current account surplus, if you're looking at trading companies and the currency kind of normalizes, doesn't that actually impact their earnings? And probably not if the uh, their administrative costs are heavily in yen, but a lot of their operations are actually overseas. These are highly international companies, and they essentially are, are uh, run a reasonably balanced book in terms of their foreign currency exposures. Well, you know, foreign currencies remind me of foreign travel, which reminds me of suitcases. And uh, I would like to say a word for one of our sponsors. It's Away Travel. And did you know uh, that uh, Away bags and accessories make for the perfect gift with our lifetime guarantee? That is our, it's like grants is not giving a lifetime guarantee. It's, it's the way travel is doing. Very generous of them too. So it's a hundred day trial. So there's a, a perfect size and color for everyone on your list this holiday season. Or grab an Away gift card if you can't make up your mind. Oh, and uh, I should mention, apart from the uh, lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, which is, by the way, it's a long shot that anything's going to break. Uh, well, I'm not going to show you because this is radio, but wait a second. Here's your lifetime warranty if anything breakage. I hardly think that's a likely possibility. Watch this or listen. That's solid, Jackson. That is not going to need no lifetime warranty, but you got one. So there's a special offer to listeners on uh, this show. This is the uh, what they say in the business is the call to action. Quote, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash grantspod and use promo code grantspod during checkout. Yeah. So uh, I'm to repeat this. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash grantspod and use promo code grantspod during checkout. So Paul, you are in the uh, the value in investing trade. You know, I we're going to skip over the possibility 
possibilities, the alternative possibilities, like in the uh, monthly quintupling crypto trade or in the up, up and away momentum trade. We'll leave that aside for the moment. But in this particular world of uh, passivity, of low discount rates and higher rates of business model obsolescence, where does the value idea fit in? Well, I think you have to be more careful. I think you have to be disciplined in terms of valuation. And I think you've got to be more conscious that there really is a greater risk that somebody can get financed in a business model that often can supplant a relatively established company or even severely dent its profitability by being able to provide goods or a service at a much lower margin than this particular company is used to, especially if it was protected by some kind of a geographic moat. Yeah, people are wont to say that there never has been a time like this with respect to the speed of and vulnerability to technological or business model obsolescence. You more than most indeed uniquely, I would say, among practitioners have a sense of the sweep of financial history. What period does this remind you of with regard to those considerations that is uh, business model and technological obsolescence? Certainly it existed during the 20s. It existed in the 30s. These were dynamic decades, notwithstanding in the case of the 30s, the uh, received wisdom late 19th century was a time of technological wonder. Are we so unusual? I'm not sure we are. I think the 20s and the 50s had tremendous effects. I mean, you, you wiped out a fair chunk of transportation infrastructure actually in both decades, the, the traction industry in the 20s, the really the bus industry in the 50s. You had a dramatic change in terms of, for example, the agricultural equipment industry in the 50s. You've had other times when you've had tremendous change affecting various types of industries. What I think is a little unusual is that in a period of very low interest rates, when people actually think they can extrapolate out business models quite far, that there's a comfort with the idea that somehow you can find things with competitive moats and apply in incredibly low cap rates to them. And that, I think, is quite dangerous, especially when it gets combined with the reinforcing momentum effects of, uh, of index investing, which yeah. now has grabbed a large chunk of the investing world. We have lived for the better part of 10 years in a time of so-called financial repression, which I must say, which phrase strikes me as a little Orwellian. Uh, but the central banks of the world have uh, made it their business to raise up asset, quoted asset values, and at least uh, they've made it their seeming business, if not by intent certainly result to suppress volatility and to instill in many practitioners a sense of inevitable bull market action. Around here, I've come to believe that we live for that, those reasons that are kind of a hall of mirrors, that what seems to be indeed is. I mean, these quoted values are what's quoted, but is it possible that uh, we have all been through the effects of central banks and of these persistently low and indeed invisible interest rates that we have been kind of uh, anesthetized in a way that we don't see risks as they really are and that people are much more exposed than they would believe than they think they are? Yeah, I, I think that's the case. I think if some of the ETF and index boom goes in reverse, I think there are any number of large companies that have very high valuation today that are quite vulnerable to to a significant decline before you're going to wind up finding various types of bargain hunters really coming in. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, 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 a classic it's, example being Exxon. Yeah. Oh, how so? Why is that? Why is that? Clear? Well, Exxon is the last time I uh, I heard uh, Exxon is in something like 200 separate ETFs. It's in not only oh, yes, energy yeah. ETFs yeah. in the S and P, but also in all kinds of dividend and buyback and other sorts of ETFs. And Exxon trades at a very substantial premium to other companies uh, with comparable financial characteristics. It's apparently a 
in a, a very well-run company. But if you had some change in these flows in the marketplace and in, in a, uh, a market that unwound, and as I recall, a speaker at your last conference went into this quite eloquently, and you wrote about it in the, uh, in the newsletter, you could have a real air pocket, notwithstanding this being a first-rate company. Yeah, that was, I think Steve Bregman singled out Exxon. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask as well um, about the seeming disconnect between the general news of the world and stock market action. And this also speaks to the eerie low readings and measured volatility to Frank Rosen's is remarked so well upon. No matter the news, it seems, uh, I don't know, what's what's your view? Is, is there in fact a disconnect? If there is, what does that signify? Well, I, th I think there is a disconnect. I think part of it is because we've had a bunch of, of news that indicates that there are some real issues out there in the world and some tail risks, but thus far they haven't affected financial markets. And, and you know, I mean, people really can become inured to all kinds of, of external difficulties that really they ignore in their daily life. I mean, I don't imagine at this point, if you take a look at it, the Israeli stock market really responds very much to the ebb and flow of missiles. daily news and area <laughs> missiles. Um, and I think the U.S. market has become a bit of the same. And we've had these sort of thematic momentums that people have as various types of stories. And I think the danger when you have a market that's this extended, particularly with some of the decreases in, in uh, liquidity that you've taken out of the intermediation functions in markets, you know, when people decide to change what they believe in some comprehensive fashion, uh, I think you could really get fairly ugly. Well, fairly ugly, the flip side of which, of course, is fairly beckoning for those with cash and with an appetite for buying when things are cheap as opposed to when they, only when they're going up, which brings me to the way you operate as a practitioner. Now, here at Grants, uh, we have the, the job of calling attention to risk, and it's, you know, it's a job. I enjoy it. But you not only call attention to it in your musings appear in your letters, but also, and more importantly for your limited partners, in the way you manage the portfolio. How do you how do you apportion assets, both with an eye to immediate opportunity, relative and absolute on the one hand, and on the other, the overhanging risk of an everything bubble, as the phrase now goes, in the context of 5,000-year firsts in interest rates and, and to some extent, not quite 5,000 years, but in the distortions of credit? Well, the first thing is we are a long-short fund. We are more short than we normally are. Uh, we are still net long, but our net long is running probably roughly half what it's been most of the time in the last probably 10 years. So the uh, that's part of it. And then the other question is, do you try to increase the quality of the situations? Because by definition, we're tending to buy things that are cheap that have problems. One of the problems tends to be that they often have a little too much debt or that they're cyclically vulnerable. We have tried to diminish debt and cyclical vulnerability as factors within the portfolio. Yeah. And finally, we've tried to increase both the average size of the names, their liquidity, and the shorten what we regard as the duration. In other words, there's a trade-off between stuff that you think should work within hypothetically 12 to 36 months and things where you're buying it really cheaply yeah. and think that something should happen but have no particular idea. And we are trending to try to look more at the former. Before we wind up, we're going to ask Paul about a couple of very specific ideas, complete with tickers uh, for the adventure. So for the, what, what, what's the Benjamin Graham phrase for enterprising investors? Right, the non-index type. But uh, I wanted to insert a word about uh, LinkedIn Learning, which um, is all about availing yourself of the online learning experience that uh, you should. Now, LinkedIn Learning is uh, for problem solvers and uh, go-getters. Your people, you know, like people who listen to, people who listen to this podcast, actually, is, is what LinkedIn Learning is for, for people who want to make moves in their career. So whether you 
work in finance, run your own company, or just want to better manage your money, LinkedIn Learning is your Swiss army knife of applicable skills. They have courses in financial foundations, including business valuation, income taxes. I wonder if they're pro or con. Well, anyway, uh, risk management courses, running a profitable business. Yeah, that'd be a good one too. And uh, accounting foundations. And they have weekly series in finance and accounting tips as well as personal finance. So uh, here's one. Here's an example. Note taking for business professionals by Paul Nowak. Um, so uh, a member of the staff, in fact, Phil Grant sitting to my right, took this particular class this morning. That's, That's right. Pretty good, right? Yep. Well, tips on what listening skills and making eye contact. Look at me. Making eye contact and capturing ideas rather than simple rote sentences. So as, um, anyway, so it's, it's worth your investigation. Let us say that. And, and we have a special deal for you. Get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com slash grant, singular grant. Um, all lowercase, and we thank you. We thank you, linkedin.com uh, slash grant. <laughs> so, Paul, um, I know Evan has been <clears throat> wanting to ask you about an actual stock or two, and I'm going to let him do it while I take a swig of Diet Coke, which is not a sponsor, by the way. But So, with so much overvalued in the U.S. market, and you, uh, you're finding better bargains overseas, are there any U.S. tickers that you find attractive today? Yeah, we have a couple that I think we've uh, talked a little bit about earlier. Two are, are CIT and JBG Smith. What do they do for a living, Paul? Well, CIT is an old uh, business finance company. It wound up having, like many financial companies, uh, excessive ambitions. It's been substantially <laughs> pruned down. Uh, it's basically left with a large kind of California bank that's a deposit franchise. It does a good deal of specialized business lending, including... Uh, specialty in the rail car finance leasing business. It also uh, does a fair amount of specialty finance. So the uh, it's currently trading about ninety little between 90 and 95% of tangible book. They just did a large tender at around tangible book to shrink the overcapitalization of the company after selling off their aircraft leasing business, which many people saw as being risky and clearly was an overhang on the firm. It now is relatively overcapitalized compared to most other banks and finance companies. It tends to lend to better quality credits, pays a modest dividend, um, has committed to return capital to shareholders, which I guess at this point will consist of potentially another fairly significant buyback if it stays here. So it's trading around uh, 10 times earnings, essentially 90 to 95% of book. We think book can continue to grow at certainly at least 7 or 8% a year above the modest 1.5 to 2% dividend. And if the thing were to be sold, we think the banking franchise is worth a significant premium to book. And certainly you have a publicly traded comparable in the rail car leasing business that trades at 1.5 times book. So we think that it's it, the sum of the parts is is certainly 30 or 40% at least in excess of the current price with some possibility that that will actually happen if uh the market response is not good enough. Uh, JBG Smith is a spinoff from Vornado. Um, it is their Washington, D.C. real estate portfolio. This is actually a kind of a real estate redeveloper. The company is not particularly well known. It was spun off into a, uh, a relatively poor REIT market. The, the company's published estimates of its own NAV, which seem pretty reasonable, are about $41. And they have a, a whole series of properties, mostly in uh, well located located downtown locations of some size, either in D.C. or at its immediate suburbs near mass transit, uh, that they're in the process of repositioning. And the company, they're able to do that successfully. It's reasonable to hope that the NAV will roughly double over the next three
three to five years, and it's trading now at about 32 or 33. So we see a discount, a, a, an NAV that has the potential to increase pretty dramatically in a market which, regrettably, has proven to be virtually recession-proof during the post-war <laughs> period. Yeah, well, uh, Washington, D.C. Is the, is the Ethereum of real estate, I'd say. Uh, on the D.C. side, the, the city has outgrown the U.S. overall because um, it gets so many federal contracts and lobbyists are trying You've to get You've noticed more... that, yeah. Even, yeah. Uh, I think the um, population's grown 7.6% from 2010 to 2016, while the U.S. overall was 4.8%. But when I look at other REITs like Avalon Bay, which is a, an apartment REIT, or some of the office REITs that are present in D.C., they're seeing a deceleration or a slowdown. Is there a risk that, I guess, under the current administration, we just don't see the same kind of growth that we've historically seen? And uh, JBG as kind of a developer and redeveloper, which is bringing two large commercial buildings on in the next few years, might kind of hit a few air pockets on the way? Well, I mean, if the administration remains as dilatory in terms of filling a lot of appointment <laughs> posts as it's been, I suppose there is a, a risk of some hiccup in terms of DC employment, although judging from the results on Tuesday, that might get remedied pretty quickly. But in, yes, there is softness in the DC market. There was a report that asking rents have ticked down modestly, and there is a fair amount of supply coming onto that market. But DC is a very tough place to do development in. And uh, over time, these any excess tends to get absorbed. It's not a place where it's easy to put a lot of stuff into the pipeline. So I think it's a question of when rather than if these uh, repositioned properties get absorbed. And when they do, it, it should be at, at rents that will justify a considerable uplift in economic value, even if it doesn't quite fulfill the initial expectation. Paul, thank you. God, this has been uh, this has just been fine, uh, delightful altogether. So I thank Paul Isaac for being with us. I thank uh, I don't know. Thank you, Eric, for doing such a spiffy job with those controls. Eric's not saying nothing. And Evan and Phil. Poker face. Yeah. And uh, I am Jim Grant. And you, um, faithful audience, I thank you for being with us. And until next time, this is Grant's Interest Rate Observer. 